0: Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do oh, But what about the names who spent their whole lives Long-stepping footfalls and catching and flies They're guys, remember that guy Remember that guy Remember that guy Remember that guy Remember that guy, remember that guy. Remember that guy. Remember that guy. just gonna remember some guys now well I've never I've never been a part of a tie uh never even knew that was in the rule book uh but again you know it's part of the rules and we have to go with it so uh you know I was looking forward to the next opportunity getting out there to try and remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks it's me James and it takes at least two to tie so let's go ahead and uh, see who we've got here with me
1: Diaz with you once again, and we're going to go to a very special guest. This is actually the person that came up with the phrase, it's like kissing your cousin. Please introduce yourself.
2: You know what? Don McNabb, he took everything from me. I really should have asked him to pay royalties. It is me, the very special guest, Xavier.
0: It is really funny to me that Philly has such a very distinct black quarterback lineage, and the guy that Won the Super Bowl for you was already the backup to like the whitest possible quarterback in the league. Well,
1: I'm just—it's great that you're saying that now, James, because that's only going to be true for about three more weeks. Absolutely, when, when we have the air to the black quarterback succession. Jalen Hurts will prove himself to be the greatest of all when the Eagles win the Super Bowl.
2: Caitlin asked me if I was going to go into the city when that happens. I was like, no, I can't. It, it'll never replicate. Living in the city in North Philly, when it happened, and just walking out onto the street for a massive citywide party on Broad Street, where people just throwing beers and setting off fireworks and breaking awnings by having a thousand people sit on them. It'll it'll never be like that again. So I'm not. I'm. I'll just enjoy the the fun from my apartment window
0: here. From your apartment window, at a very safe distance. You
2: know what? I'm literally like a hundred feet from the from city line. So I'm sure I'll see it and hear it and people might explode outside my apartment too.
0: Well, speaking of seeing and hearing about Madison, Philadelphia, Diaz, I don't suppose I could hear perhaps who's making memories for you right now.
1: Well, the easy thing would be to go in on that incredible Eagles win 38-7 on the five-year anniversary of 38-7 over the Vikings en route to that Super Bowl. And that's maybe just like a subtext to what's making memories for me. So that was a home game for the Eagles. It was at 8 p.m. on Saturday, which was basically Roger Goodell daring the city of Philadelphia to drink as much alcohol as they possibly could (laughs) from sunrise to sunset. Now, the only issue with that is the Eagles tailgate lots didn't open until 4 p.m. So in trying to be conscientious and cut that down, they're trying to limit to just a four-hour tailgate, which is... Enough time to get you know a good buzz going, but it's not what a Philadelphian is looking for. There is nothing that will keep a Philadelphian between them and their booze. So what these crafty Philadelphia Eagles fans did, the indoor lacrosse team, the Wings, was playing at 1 p.m. that same day, also at the sports complex. The lots open for this game at 8 a.m. So if you bought a ticket to the Wings game you were allowed in to park at 8 a.m. So a ton of Wings tickets were sold. I'm sure it'll be their best attendance, at least in terms of tickets sold of the whole season. But it was just so that the fans could get there early to tailgate.
0: Did you have to have the second ticket to remain there tailgating? Was the lacrosse ticket enough to stay all day?
1: That I'm not sure of, but I'm definitely sure that at least some Philadelphians were making that argument.
0: Good luck. No. I mean, out. it's a great Good luck value. kicking box. them
2: out after yeah. that. I, I yeah, I went to it's... the city early on Saturday because I was going to the tattoo convention. The swarm of people at the convention center getting Eagles tattoos before the Eagles game was incredible.
1: Listen, it's it's a city full of sickos. Um, <laughs> but the, so the thing that jumped out to me was last night. There was a replay of that game, the, the wins game that was played on Saturday. And I said, you know what? Let me at least check this out. And have either of you heard of a man by the name of Blaze Riordan?
0: I can safely say no, because there's no way that I would be unsure about whether or not I've heard about someone named Blaze Riordan.
2: I've seen plenty of lacrosse name, like where it's like, these are the 10 best lacrosse names, but I do not remember Blaze Riordan, which is weird. Do you think that's not even one of the top 10 best lacrosse names?
1: It's a great name, and you may remember a clip at least. Do you remember, this was a few years ago, like around 15 or 16, the goalie for Albany made a save and went end-to-end and scored a goal, and it was like the top play on SportsCenter. Do you? Do either yeah. of you remember that? Yes. So that was Blaze Riordan. Blaise That's Blaze
0: Riordan? Oh, my goodness. He's just as good as his name. Just as good as his
1: name, and a goalie coming forward, obviously you're thinking, okay, this guy has skill on both ends. And Blazer Riordan is not a goalie for the Wings. He's actually playing attack for them. After his freshman year at Albany, uh, a teammate invited him to play box lacrosse, which is what the indoor variation is called. Blazier Riordan had never played box lacrosse until then. He just came up as a goalie. He has been on both of the U.S. international teams. He's been on the box lacrosse team as an attacker and on the traditional outdoor lacrosse team as a goalie. He is one of the best players in the world at both ends of lacrosse.
0: He's the Shohei Otani of lacrosse. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's the best way to put it. Honestly, honestly. The Wings did get smacked in that game on Saturday. But in watching those highlights, I did get to see. The Wings went up 1-0. Blaze Riordan scored the first goal. Uh, he's the team's leading goal scorer this year. He has 13 so far. and I just loved to to learn that a a great lacrosse name like Blaze Riordan exists, and that b his on-field production matches the greatness of that name as a forward in the box game, as a goalie in the traditional game. It doesn't matter where you put him, he's gonna blaze it. Blaze Riordan, making memories.
0: <laughs> it's, it's a guy in the making. The guy, Bunil, needs to closely monitor his career. And when he's retired, I think there's some conversations to be had. But there you go, please. <laughs> I'm just
2: thinking the Palpatine meme now. We'll Watch <laughs> your career with great interest.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of Dark Sith Lords, it's time for us to bring things down a little bit. You mentioned the Wings there. And while we're not concerned with the Wings in particular, that is a WNBA team. And I do need to turn to the W. Uh, I made a terrible mistake last week. Which was to say anything positive about any of my teams while we're recording this ever. A horrible mistake that you'd think I would have learned from by now, but here we are. I did talk about my confidence in the Las Vegas Aces repeating as champions. My confidence isn't necessarily shaken, but my uh, appreciation of the team perhaps is. De'Erica Marie Hamby, longtime Ace. She's actually she was a Silver Star for a little bit. She was drafted. Back in 2015, made the trip from Wake Forest to San Antonio. We know how good that always goes for us. (laughs) And uh, then she made the trip of the franchise from San Antonio to Las Vegas. She is the two-time sixth woman of the year. Uh, Really good. One of my absolute favorite players on the team. Had a famous moment in 2019 against the Sky in one of the single elimination playoffs. A, A fan favorite. Great team member. Shockingly traded this week, January 21st. Uh, really kind of took everybody's by surprise, and then some explanation came out. This is through D'Erica Marie Hamby's Instagram, where she first off had a very lovely first page of the post thanking everyone in both San Antonio and Las Vegas, all of the fans for, for support. And then the next page, which was significantly longer, was basically a scorched earth takedown of the Las Vegas organization, which uh, apparently, after signing her to a large extension last year. Found out about her getting pregnant last season, which she announced during the championship parade following their title, pregnant with her second child. And this apparently pissed the team off very much. So they now have pretty unceremoniously traded her to the Los Angeles Sparks. And it's a really crappy move in particular because Amaya Hamby, Theo so Marie Hamby's first child, has been... Very heavily marketed as like, oh, look at the fun mascot that the team's got on the sidelines. Constantly in in videos and stuff for their social team. And hey, love Amaya Hemby. She's an adorable little kid. But now, I I know. I'm not going to. Again, she said nothing but love to all of the players and fans. But definitely some frustration with the Aces organization. So we'll compartmentalize and deal with that later but it is making memories for me in the meantime
2: this is the second week in a row we've talked about players who were treated badly by otherwise very highly thought of organizations for getting pregnant please don't make us talk about this three weeks in a row i don't want to have to to see that again
1: i'm just like i'm just thinking now like because nba 2k has you can do a wnba season Mm-hmm. And you can turn injuries off. Can you turn pregnancy off in the video game? That sounds like the
2: greatest
0: injury. FIFA <laughs> <ball.
2: laughs> has a, a thing where you can have a player get upset because their house with heat lamps to make it look feel more like Brazil when they're playing in England doesn't work, so they want to leave the country. That sounds like something that should be in QK. I don't know if you should have a slider for it. The pregnancy slider.
0: (laughs) What a wonderful modern world that we live in. Anyway, the unpleasant handling of a player's pregnancy, that's the shot for us. Xavier, please give us a good chaser here.
2: All right. Do either of you know the last time that an American man won a Grand Slam singles title? It's got to be
1: Roddick in 03, U.S. Open.
2: Yes, it was Andy Roddick in 03. He just turned 21, Andy Roddick. He literally turned 21 during the tournament, beat Juan Carlos Ferreira. Does anyone want to know the last time an American man even made a Grand Slam final?
0: I'm going to say Roddick like four years later. Close. It it was
2: Roddick in the 2009 U.S. Open. 2009 Wimbledon, sorry, where he lost to Roger Federer. So we're on a 20-year streak of not winning, and on a 14 year streak of not even making it. And this year, the Australian Open is ongoing. Unfortunately, on the women's side, Coco Gauff and Jessica Pagula were both upset, and there are no American women left in the singles draw. But on the men's side, the quarterfinals are happening. Early this morning, Sebastian Corda unfortunately had to withdraw due to a wrist injury. But there is one all American quarterfinal, and that is between. Tommy Paul and Ben Shelton. Paul is 25, has, hasn't done anything major, has no, no big victories. Shelton is a little more interesting. So he's 20 years old. He didn't turn professional until August of last year. His father was a tennis professional, but he grew up playing American football because he didn't want to play tennis. So he, he ended up getting a very late start. And unlike most juniors-level players, he never traveled to play tennis against other talented juniors because his father said, are you the best tennis player in America? And he said, no. So he said, so why do you have to leave America to go challenge anybody else? So unlike his peers, he stayed in America entirely, went to college at the university of Florida where he won a national championship and just practiced, practiced, practiced. And so the first time he ever left the country, was to go to Australia for the Australian Open. This is only his second ever major. He played in the first round of the U.S. Open last year where he lost uh, to another unranked wildcard entry. And not only did he get his first win in a major, he's now in the quarterfinals with a chance to face possibly Novak Djokovic in the semis.
1: And this is Djokovic's first one since the pandemic because he's done this, right?
2: Djokovic was not allowed in Australia or was actually deported from Australia last year because of being a dumb. I, I, I can't remember if he if he lied about it or if there was like they tried to give him an exemption and the government was like, hey, you can't just give him an exemption when we're blocking everyone who's not vaccinated from coming into the country. So I was thinking of the best way to phrase that. But yes, Djokovic was deported last year, allowed to play this year, highest rated men's player left. So... Currently the favorite to win. But at the very least, we're going to have an American in the semifinals, either Ben Shelton or Tommy Paul. But from everything I've been reading about Shelton, it looks like the expectation is he's going to have a very strong career. Maybe he can be the first American in 20 years to win a title. If not, there are going to be 10 American men ranked in the top 50 starting next week when the next rankings come out, which is the best that they have had in over 20 years. So hopefully, you know, two decades in the wilderness are about to be over for American men and they can kind of pick up some of the slack that they've kind of left the women to have to deal with, aka Serena and everyone else. So excited to see what's going to happen with men's tennis, especially with No More Federer Nadal having so many injuries and being mid-30s and Jokovic getting getting older too. It feels like there's a vacuum there for a lot of talented young players from across the world.
0: Like the moment right after we thought, oh, okay, cool. Like Brady and Manning, we're done with with that now in the AFC. There's going to be this rush of new talent. So now let's see which tennis person is going to come over and be the new Patrick Mahomes that just says, no, there will be no further competition. Actually, I'm just going to go ahead and take it from here. <laughs>
2: We will see what happens. I'm excited, but, you know, kind of along those lines, Ben Shelton had never left America until now and is still in Australia has not returned yet. And I want to talk about other American exports, people who started off in America and then had to find their way somewhere else and then just essentially stayed and enjoyed their careers outside of the U.S., Today, I want to talk about a different oceanic country and a different sport than the tennis I was just talking about. I want to talk about Casey Frank.
0: Casey Frank. Now, Casey, a bit of an androgynous name. Do you mind if I ask? Are we talking about Mr. Mrs. Mix? Mr. Casey. Mr. Casey. Mr. Casey Frank. Mr. Casey Mr. Frank. Casey Frank. Mr. Okay. Casey Frank. My, my
2: apologies.
0: No, no. Um, I'd, I'd no apologies whatsoever. Thank you for clarifying.
2: So, Casey Frank. Born October 23, 1977, in uh, Port Jefferson, New York, out on Long Island. At an early age, he moved to Arizona and attended North High School in Phoenix, where he played basketball. In fact, Charles Barkley and Nike filmed his I Am Not a Role Model commercial in the North High School basketball gym while Casey was a student
0: there. And Casey was like, "I'm absolutely going to follow the lead of this individual that I see right now."
2: Yes, I'm going to become a ma- a very tall forward and play professional basketball. <laughs> After graduation, uh, Casey, not very highly recruited, attends Northern Arizona and plays for the Lumberjacks. During his junior year, uh, he's the second leading scorer and the leading rebounder for the team, putting up 11 and six. As the Lumberjacks go 21 and eight. And win the Big Sky Conference regular season and conference tournament, making the NCAA tournament for the first time ever. The 15 seed Lumberjacks matched up against number two Cincinnati. They're winning for 90 plus percent of the game, with Casey leading the team with 13 points and putting up strong defense. They held Kenyon Martin to nine points. They lost on a three pointer with three seconds left by Dewan Baker. 65-62.
0: Painful loss for the Lumberjacks. Like a tree yeah. falling on them in the middle of a woods with no one to hear them.
2: Very tough. They do not have an NCAA tournament victory in their history. They only made the tournament one other time in 2000 where they lost to St. John's. Also as a 15 seed, they lost by five in that one. So they, they played tight the two times they've made it, but have not made it since. So next season, Casey has another pretty good season. But as a secondary option on a Big Sky team, he doesn't go drafted. doesn't even really get tryout options in the NBA. So he still wants to play basketball, and he spends the next year and a half essentially trying to uh, make his way on different teams across the world. He does tryouts in Spain, France, Australia. He's not able to make anything stick. Finally, on January twenty fourth, 2001, he signs with the Lacrosse Bobcats of the Continental Basketball Association in Lacrosse, Wisconsin. Less than two weeks later, he gets put on IR, and within a week of him being put on IR, the entire league declares bankruptcy and folds. So now, the injured Casey has to figure out what to do this time. He spends some time recovering and searches around again for a new team. He ends up going to Sweden. He plays the 01-02 season with the Salin Basket. A team that also does not exist anymore. So at this point, his his two most recent teams do not exist. So, he gets an offer to go to the NBL. And this isn't the NBL you're thinking of, the Australian NBL, this is the New Zealand semi pro NBL, where he joins the Blockbuster Auckland Stars. And yes, they are sponsored by the company. Blockbuster, and are officially known in NBL Communications as the Blockbuster Auckland Stars, at least for a couple of years until Blockbuster can no longer afford to sponsor them. I
0: have to say I'm now very worried for the third straight team that Mr. Frank has played on and its financial <laughs> viability.
2: So, after a bit of an adjustment period in his first year in New Zealand, he establishes himself as a starter. This being a semi-pro league in You know, a somewhat small country. Seasons are only 18 games long for the New Zealand NBL. It is not a full-time gig. He does pretty well his first two seasons. He actually gets a look with the New Zealand breakers of the Australian NBL for their debut season 2003-2004, but that only lasts 12 games before he gets released. Back in the New Zealand NBL... Things are still going good, though. Auckland wins back-to-back titles in 2004 and 2005, and Casey plays a major role in both championships. He gets named captain in 2005. He gets named the most outstanding forward. The New Zealand NBL has MVPs, New Zealand MVPs, and then positional MVPs, along with what they call the All-Star Five, which is essentially like the all-NBA first team. So this season, Casey is most outstanding forward the center on the All-Star 5, and back-to-back champions.
0: Here's my question. Like, are there a lot of other players that have been imported? Like, What is the makeup of this league in terms of, I guess, New Zealand Nationals versus...
2: It's, it's mostly New Zealand Nationals. There's only a couple like foreign spots allowed for each team. But they, all, you know, they want to make sure that New Zealand players get a significant portion of, of the minutes. And That's why they break things up with you know New Zealand MVP versus non New Zealand MVP. Although weirdly enough, you can win both if you're just like the best, the best. They they can just say that no, you're just you just win all of them, uh, which I saw happen with one player at a at a different point. So New Zealand basketball praised him as quote the import with tall black aspirations. I so I you- just
1: want to say we can't let it go by without acknowledging how fantastic of a nickname the Tall Blacks is.
2: Yes, the Tall Blacks is very good. I actually looked up all of the New Zealand sporting nicknames. It all comes from, from rugby, where a British like, newspaper describing the New Zealand rugby team had meant to say, quote, uh, they played as if they were all backs, which is a position in, in rugby, but it was a oh, misprint for all Blacks
0: it was just a typo the national team is literally just named after a typo
2: so it was a typo oh and, they, and they, they, they stuck with it so everything became some variation of of, of that and, and
1: to, be, to be clear dear listener New Zealand wears black uniforms for like most of their international competitions
2: uh, except for but, um, except for soccer where they originally did not allow. Teams to wear black because that was what the referees had to wear. So the New Zealand soccer team is the all-whites instead. There's also the black cocks for, uh, for the badminton team, but that caused some issues and they had to get rid of that nickname.
0: Oh, did that cause some <laughs> issues?
1: Yeah, was, it, was it just BBC for short?
0: <laughs> just trying to Google about New Zealand badminton, that's all.
2: So his performance gets him another crack at the Australian NBL. Uh, where he gets signed as an injury replacement for the West Sydney Razorbacks. He plays three games before getting cut after his services were no longer needed because the person he was replacing came back from injury. So then the Breakers sign him again as an injury replacement, and he plays for two games before the same happens. 2006 is Casey's best individual season as a professional. He officially gets naturalized as a New Zealand citizen in time to be called up uh, by the Tall Blacks for the 2006 Commonwealth Games in Melbourne, after a hard-fought back-and-forth final, Casey New Zealand fell to Australia 81-76, but you know, still walked away with the silver medal. During the 2006 uh, New Zealand NBL season, he gets named Most Outstanding Forward, the forward on the All-Star Five, and New Zealand's Most Valuable Player. This time. His play gets him a two-year contract with the Wollongong Hawks of the ANBL. You might know them now as the Iliwara Hawks, who have put a couple people into the NBA. Has an admirable shift for them. Averages 12 points, 7 boards in just 26 minutes across the 33-game season. Over the next three years, he is able to alternate between the New Zealand NBL and the Australian NBL. He puts, you know, solid role-player numbers in Australia for the Gold Coast Blaze, while still starring for the Stars in Auckland. He gets another Most Outstanding Forward Award, another New Zealand Most Valuable Player Award. But Auckland tails off pretty badly from their mid-2000s peak. And after a 500 season in 2008, their owner, who was a bit petty use the Corporate Register of New Zealand to legally change their name to Bunch of Losers Limited. (laughs) I thought you would like that, James. Uh, Are they still
0: the Blockbuster Bunch of Losers Limited? No,
2: Blockbuster has, has struggled and is not able to support them financially anymore. And their owner is also not really able to support them financially anymore. Because after they missed the playoffs in 2009... This is the end of Casey's time with Auckland, because the winningest team in the New Zealand NBL, with nine championships at the time, no one else had more than five, is broke. They're unable to pay their players, and they get kicked out of the NBL, essentially put on suspension for a year, and said, hey, you can come back next year after you can figure stuff out, and their owner was like, nah, and then just dissolves the team and leaves the country.
0: And so you said this was not like a league-wide meltdown. This was this team. This was this this team. The champion team just collapsing. Which means that this is the third team
2: that uh, Casey's been on that has collapsed during his time there. He's the kiss of death. You were right to worry. So the now 32-year-old Casey once again needs a team. So he moves south and joins the Wellington Saints. They immediately win the NBL title. And then they win it again, back-to-back in 2011. Casey also gets another chance to represent New Zealand on the international level. He comes off the bench at the 2010 FIBO World Cup, averaging seven points and four boards. Uh, And then he gets a couple minutes again uh, as the last man on the roster in the 2014 World Cup, including a couple minutes in a game against the Anthony Davis-led U.S. team that led to a Grantland article that joked about him and other U.S.-born, quote, traders saying, quote, he's a four-time NBL champion, five-time all-star, and a three-time Kiwi MVP. Also, he looks like the dude at your dorm who has great weed and takes Ultimate Frisbee extremely seriously. Benedict Arnold rating, one out of ten Benedicts. Hey, anywhere is better than Long Island.
0: He does not seem to be doing this as, like, any kind of malevolent act.
2: No, Andre Blash had a seven out of ten Benedict Arnold uh, rating for that year. Fair. after fair. Tough but fair. He essentially, what, paid the Philippines to become a citizen to play there. So, AC plays a couple more seasons with the Saints, uh, the Wokado Pistons, and the Super City Rangers before officially retiring in 2016. During this time, being only a semi-pro for his last couple seasons, he also found time for a uh, a different career path where he plays a role as a villain in a Bollywood film, uh, Mohenjo Daro, uh, he portrays Bakar, the champion of the villainous Senate chief Maham, who the protagonist Sarman must defeat in order to destroy corruption, introduce democracy to the populace, save everyone from a massive flood, and then marry his beloved Chani. I have no words. Great. <laughs> Bollywood films are fantastic. I very much want to watch Mohendra daro later. I've been trying to find it.
1: Bollywood films lean in to what films are supposed to be, which is entertainment. Suspend your disbelief. It is, there is no disbelief. The disbelief has been banned. It's not even suspended.
2: So you got New Zealand basketball player and Bollywood actor. Currently, since he retired, you know Casey does some basketball analysis for Sky Sports New Zealand. Has a basketball podcast called Straight Dribble uh, on Spotify. His day job working at a PR company in Auckland. But, you know, he's still pretty beloved in New Zealand. 2021, the NBL did a countdown of their 40 best players over their 40 years. In case he gets named at number 22. So, you know, not, not the best ever, but a key piece of the Auckland dynasty before Auckland exploded and died.
0: He gets a little bit of his flowers down under. I don't know what like a New Zealand typical flower is, but whatever it is. That's whatever a
2: Kiwi flower looks like. flower made of kiwis, like one of those edible arrangements. But that is the story of Casey Frank. The Long Island-turned-Arizonan-turned-New Zealander-slash-kiwi was an import for the Tall Blacks, a starring player of a semi-pro league that has had at least moderate levels of success and villain in a Bollywood film.
1: We love a guy with a second career. We love a Mr. International. Not just limited to his basketball experience, but also to his film experience. Casey Frank, quite frankly, could be a guy. We'll see.
0: Frankly, it's possible. It is possible. But we have some contenders. I, for one, have a contender that I'm very excited to talk about. You guys know the phrase big in Japan, right? Yes. Big in Japan, it's a condition that we see play out following World War II. Big thing is that Elvis... Never tours in Japan. And so during the period where Elvis is the biggest thing in the world elsewhere, a lot of other pop culture acts kind of fill in that void. And so Big in Japan comes to refer to anyone that has a bigger market there than they would in the United States because of less competition for whatever reason. And this is continued to be a thing in music. Uh, It is often a thing in professional wrestling because the very hot Japanese professional wrestling scene over there. And very notably, It is a thing in baseball. This is, you know, for a very long time, something that like old, long-in-the-tooth vets would do to squeeze out a couple more years in the mid-20th century. But at a certain point around the 80s, some of the Japanese teams decided to start looking for guys a little bit more in their prime. There's one who I think really represents the major sea change in foreign participation in NPB. That guy who I want to talk about today is Randy Bass. The name does sound familiar. Randy Bass, so he's, he is not just a Nippon player. He does have some time in the majors. He starts off his experience pretty far away from Japan in Lawton, Oklahoma, a very small podunk town in Oklahoma where on March 14th, 1954, he is born to his father, Fred, and his mother, name unknown. I cannot find information about a whole lot of Randy Bass's early life.
1: Now, hold on a second. Yes. Because we often hear of didn't know who the father was. And like, based on what I learned in my seventh grade sex ed class, that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. But the child is typically born of the mother. This is, okay. This is
0: Randy knew who his mom was. I'm saying I have not been able to find (laughs) very much, if any information about early Randy Bass life, including the name of his mother, Uh, I don't know how many siblings he had. I know he has at least one. His dad's Fred and his brother is also Fred, Freddy. The only other things I know about his childhood before high school, that he has two huge brushes with death. The age of five, he is walking behind an ice cream truck into traffic and he's struck and pinned by a car. The only thing that happens is he breaks his nose. Otherwise he's totally fine. (laughs) In sixth grade, He's riding on a boat that is being pulled alongside the river by a truck driven by his older brother and his friends, and they crash. He shatters both of his legs, and the femur perforates the skin. It is a horrible injury from which they didn't even know if he would be able to walk. However, in high school, he is still not only able to walk, but able to play both football and baseball, for the Wolverines at Lawton High. He's a tight end in football and he's a power hitting first baseman for the Lawton, Oklahoma Wolverines. Somehow he commits to both Kansas State for football and Tulsa for baseball for college.
2: <laughs> I have
0: absolutely no idea how this is possible. This is me quoting an instance that he said to Sports Illustrated at one point in the eighties. Sure. Whatever. It doesn't end up coming to pass because instead, in the 1972 draft, he is taken in the seventh round by the Minnesota Twins, signs a big, fat $15,000 signing bonus, and goes to join the Twins organization. From the jump, Randy Bass is what you would call an incredibly good minor league baseball player. That first year in rookie ball, 59 games, bats 307, 10 dingers, 41 ribbies, and Uh, He moves very quickly through the twin system, always excelling. He's going to the exotic locales of Wisconsin Rapids, Tacoma, and Lynchburg. And uh, (laughs) during the winters, he's going to the slightly more actually exotic locale of Mexico, where he's getting his first taste of foreign living. He is playing with Ricky Henderson one summer while he's down in Mexico. And they go out clubbing. And Ricky Henderson's wearing some high heels, as was the fashion at the time. A gunfight breaks out at this club that they're in in Mexico. Some people come in, just kind of firing and the two of them take cover. Ricky Henderson's high heel gets shot, and the bullet like destroys the heel on it. That being said, it hits the heel of his shoe and not the heel of his foot. So if Ricky Henderson was not an incredibly fashionable person, his entire career might have ended there that night with Randy Bass in that Mexican club. But both of the two of them continue on their careers. In September of 1977, Randy Bass finally gets a little bit of a cup of coffee, nine games. He bats 105 in September of that year for the Twins. And he gets a slightly longer leash the next year. But the manager at the time, Gene Mock, he's just not feeling it. Does not think Randy's got it. So he demotes him back to A, and Randy refuses to report. So as punishment, they demote him to A, and Randy refuses to report. And so as punishment, they demote him to single A and everybody say it with me. Randy refuses report. to report. <laughs> so at this point, though, okay, fine, we're trading you. Jesus, stop this. He gets sent to the Kansas City Royals in 78. He does go to their AAA team, Omaha, figuring he might get a chance to come up later on. And during a rash of injuries, he gets two pinch hit appearances, and then he is immediately traded to Boston and sent back down to the minors. In the offseason, he is traded from Boston to Montreal. Manager Dick Williams, here in Montreal, sees him in spring training and doesn't really feel it, sends him down to Denver, their AAA team, where this incredibly good minor league player excels yet again. He's been 333, 36 home runs, 105 RBI, still not good enough for Dick Williams. The next season, 333 again, 37 home runs, 147 RBI, minor league player of the year, still not good enough for Dick Williams. And so with him like clearly not going to break at any time, the Padres decide to inquire about him. They like him. So the Padres bring him up. He has a home run in his first at-bat for the Padres. Then later that month, he tears the cartilage in his left knee sliding into home plate. Mm. In 1981. Okay, here we go. Padres, they're talking about, they're going to roll with the young guys. 27. He's finally going to have an everyday position. And in the first 30 games, the Padres go 10 and 20. And by that point, he is slashing 197, 290, 328. It is just not good enough. He starts getting benched a lot. He plays in exactly 69 games that year. Nice, but not what you want to see at age 27. Finally, in spring training, Padres get a new manager, Dick Williams. Oh, and no. so he's waived. And after a couple games with the Rangers, calls it quits. That is the end of Randy Bass's major league career. So he is adrift at the age of 28, and out of the blue, gets a call. An agent, Alan Mirand, had negotiated NBP contracts before, Nippon Professional Baseball, which is what the league over in Japan has been called for many decades now, and he gets Bass a big money offer compared to what he's been making in the minor leagues. Two years, 875000 to go to the Osaka Hanshin Tigers over an NPB. This is not the first contract for any foreign players by a long shot. Again, like even Alan Mearson is already negotiating a lot of contracts through this time. And there's been some foreign participation pretty much since it started up in Japan in the 1930s, one time or another. There is a lull around World War II for obvious reasons, but it had been picking up as we came into this time. There, there's a different approach to the game that had kept a lot of foreign players from having long careers there. For one, there's way more practice in spring training, which a lot of people did not like. There's like two months of spring training before you uh, even start the actual season. And it's all very team-oriented. It's not a lot of individual stat accumulation. So there's that. There's also a little bit of anti-foreign sentiment about players being on there. You could, much like I think, Xavier, you were saying with the New Zealand League, only have a certain number of foreign players on your team. This had been three for a long time. It had been lowered to two in 1963, but here we are in the eighties where you're going to start trying to not just pick up guys who are on the fringes because they're 35 or older. Now you're like, okay, who's a quad, a player, someone who is excelling at the level, just sort of underneath where NPB is kind of considered today between the majors and triple a. And more than anything, Who can fit the one archetype that we don't really have in Japan, which is a slugger. Most people that come over from America to Japan, they fit that to a T. They are boppers, they hit dingers. The Hanshin Tigers are a really good place for them to land. It is a big foreign trade port city over there, Nishinoyama, which is near Osaka Bay. And because of that, it's a very diverse population and they're very relatively welcoming to foreigners. And it's a really great fan base. They had like four titles way back in the day before the modern NPB had started. Since then, they had had absolutely no championships whatsoever and only two pennants. And despite this, they are like the Cubs. They're the lovable losers that have a massive national fan base. They will regularly like outshow home teams when they go travel on the road. And they truly are lovable losers. They have not, when he comes in at this point, finished higher than third since 1976. And that's in a six-team conference. So they're not very good. In Bass's first two seasons, 83 and 84, he's under manager Motu Ando, and their fortunes do not change very much. They are fourth both those seasons. But Bass, after a very brief learning curve, is really like getting into it. The one thing that he kind of has to pick up is it's much more likely that you see breaking balls at any given point. It's, It's much more about control and ball movement versus just overpowering gas in terms of the pitching. That's why guys like Hugh Darvish who come here at these massive arsenals because they've kind of developed it in that different environment. So once he kind of gets the hang of that, he is on fire. This year, I feel like we get fewer of these, but in 420 at bats, nice. He bats 288 with 35 home runs and then increases that next year to 326 with 27 home runs. He is absolutely catching the the hanshin tigers fan base by storm they love him normally his name would be pronounced basu with a short a there at the beginning instead he is uh called by the fans basu an elongated a there it's a subtle thing but it was very important because hanshin the name there for the Tigers, it's a railway organization that also owned bus line and bus is also basu with that Short a. And so they wanted to make sure that the nickname for Randy Bass, Basu, in case things were going like very well and the headline said Randy Bass explodes for four hits or the, he- the headline was really bad, like Randy Bass's performance crashes. They didn't want people to think an actual bus was exploding or crashing.
1: So
2: that's this, a fair distinction to make.
1: What this makes me think of is Tecatito, a player for the Mexican national team. His last name is Corona, but the team Mm -hmm. he plays for in Liga MX is sponsored by Tecate. So they made his nickname Tecatito. So instead of saying (laughs) Corona on the broadcast, they're saying Tecatito.
0: It also makes me think of how when Kike Hernandez got to Boston, he insisted on putting the accent on the E, even though like grammatically it's not necessary. But in Boston, it was very necessary.
1: Just want to be sure we don't have any mispronunciations there.
0: Now, I I think that part of the reason that Randy Bass was the first one of these American players to like really kind of capture a fan base is he's so American. Like he's this big bearded Oklahoma cowboy that has been dropped into this town in like the Pacific coast of Japan. They absolutely adore him. He's got the whole family there while he's here. They will pay rent for their apartment the whole time he's there every season. They're paying tuition for his kids to go to an English speaking school. So they're being pretty well taken care of. That brings us into 1985. Shaking things up a little bit. We got a new manager, Yoshio Yoshida, who's a 16-year vet of the team, who'd already briefly managed for a little bit in 1969. Nice. And the team's fortunes immediately reverse. Basu wins his first ever batting title and triple crown and MVP. It is... The best foreign offensive season by a country mile this year is a 1-1-46 OPS. And the Hanschen Tigers have four of the top five OPSs that season. Their lineup bashes them all the way to a first-place regular season finish. Entering the final two games, Randy Bass had 54 home runs, which is one short of the single season record set by legendary Japanese slugger and global home run king, Sadaharu Oh. They are playing against O's old team, managed by O, the Yomiuri Giants. And in two games, Randy Bass has walked eight times. They don't give him anything. In one of his at-bats, he holds the bat upside down, just kind of as like, hey, what's the point?
2: I enjoy that very much.
0: So you'll also enjoy this. In one of the very last ones, he manages to reach his bat over the strike zone to get a ball that he just laces over the infield to get like a bloop single. Everyone boos him for it. Later on, another American that was on the Giants, pitcher Keith Comstock, he would claim that they were told they'd be fined $1,000 per strike thrown to Randy Bass. Sada o does deny this. No time to dwell on this. We got playoffs to worry about. At this time, the playoff structure is the two leagues in it, like the American National League, the Central Pacific. The leader of each of those are going to come meet in the Japan Series. It's old, win your pennant, and get a spot in the World Series style. The Honshin Tigers face a very thematically appropriate opponent, the Saitama Seibu Lions. So we got Lions and Tigers, no Bears, but oh my, in six games, the Honshin Tigers do manage to win their first ever Japan series. The area goes insane. Some celebrators in Osaka flock to this bridge, and they start doing all the chants that they have for each player because... Japanese crowds are incredible watching baseball and they will do a bespoke chant for each player the whole time they're batting all the time. There is no quiet during these. When they're doing it here during the celebration, as they do each player's song, they're finding someone in the crowd that looks like that player and they're throwing them into the river. They get to Randy Bass and they look around and well, there aren't a lot of people in the crowd that look like a big white bearded baseball player. Good thing is Japan is a land that has a lot of American exports and another American export they're quite fond of is Kentucky fried chicken. And the reason that I mentioned this is they go to a nearby Kentucky fried chicken, which outside of it has a statue of Colonel Sanders, who looks quite a bit like Randy Bass to this crowd. And so they pick up that statue, they truck it to the river, and they throw Colonel Sanders into the river.
2: I might have to be (laughs) careful when I go to Japan. But I'm, good I'm going to any <laughs> baseball games
0: i don't think there's anyone that looks particularly like you luckily on any of the uh japanese rosters so i mean they might throw you in spitefully if. Uh, if anyone loses. <laughs> now in 1986 randy bass is going to win another triple crown and he almost hits 400 you would have been the first person in npb history to have ever done that settles for a still then record 389 batting average over the season gets a big endorsement from Gillette at one point to shave his beard for this big televised event. It's like $150,000 for it. Crazy money for shaving your beard. But the team does slide from first to third. And the next year, Yoshio Yoshida's last as manager, they fall even further down to last place. This is despite another stellar bass season. He goes down to 320, but still 37 home runs. His 37th home run that season is his 200th in NPB. It doesn't matter whatever magic they captured there in 1985. It seems to have vanished. And we come to 1988 partway into the season Bass's son does develop a certain kind of brain cancer He gets this diagnosis and they get permission from the team at the time to go get him some help in the U S in fact, they even get like a procedure done by team organized medical facilities to prepare him for the plane ride to the United States. This is kind of reminiscent of an incident he'd already had in 1984 when his dad died and he went back to the States for a little bit, which was compared to when Sadaharu O went for a single day for his dad's wake when he died and then went back to baseball. Like, that's kind of what they expect. And so when he comes back, people are like, have some issues with him here in 1984. They're asking him about it. He says, how can you put a game in front of somebody you love? At the time then, I think it very much played into the Americanness ness that everyone was loving about Randy Bass. There is less sympathy from the organization this time, for whatever reason. Later on, they go back and they try to say, we did not authorize this. In fact, we do not want to pay you while you are there in the United States getting treatment for your son. And this becomes a PR nightmare for them. An executive travels to see the family in San Francisco, he meets with him and his agent, and they can't. Work out like a, a resolution to this now that this has been done. And the executive, reportedly due to the shame felt over how this went, later that night jumped from his hotel balcony to his death.
2: What the fuck?
0: Out of again, reportedly just shame of this not going well, uh, which shakes Randy Bass to his core. Uh, this is the end of Randy Bass's professional baseball career. There's interest in the NPB, there's even a tiny bit in MLB. But he, he decides to go out with, like, no real fall-off in that. And also, I mean, after the actual fall-off, kind of like, eh, maybe I need to step away from all of it. I do want to specify, he, is, he, he and the team are on good terms now. He's appeared for, like, uh, anniversary things. The team, by the way, has continued to suffer since that time because of the so-called Curse of the Colonel. See, after they threw that statue in, In 10 of the next 16 years, they finished in last place. They did not win the Central League again until 2003 and 2005, both of which times, by the way, everyone insisted, hey, hide your statues inside while this is going on. They do lose in both those Japan series appearances. In 2009, they do recover a lot of the statue, but the left hand and the glasses are still missing. And I believe that is why they still, when they reached again in 2014 after finding this, have not gotten over that hump. And have lost in another Japan series. So still to this day, since throwing the Randy Bass look-alike Colonel Sanders into the river, no success for them.
2: You should just build a new one.
0: No, the mojo is stored deep in that left hand and glasses, deep in that river, and it needs to be needs to be found. There's no other way. Because Randy Bass is clearly not cursed. He has gone on to a very successful political career. He was a like cultural ambassador for baseball programs, growing them in in Japan and here in the States as well. And then got so good at that, that he was able to ride off of those coattails all the way to a win in a special election for the Oklahoma State Senate. And then he ran three more times for the Oklahoma State Senate, uh, always as a Democrat, successfully in 2006, defending his seat. And then in 2010, 2004, running unopposed because he was just so damn good at being an Oklahoma State Senator. His son, by the way, is all good. All cancer treatment did go successfully, just so we have that resolved. One last thing, I do just want to touch on that home run record, because it's dubious and it was one of the things that I initially thought of when we came to this. I'll point out real quick, in Sadahara O's season, they played 140 games. Randy Bass's was 130-game season when he came up just one short, and it has remained 130 games since then. A couple other people have made good runs. 2001, Tuffy Rhodes, another American, comes and ties up 55 home runs, when they play against the Fukuoka Daye Hawks, who at that time were managed by Sadaharu O. Tuffy Rhodes does not hit 56 home runs. Venezuelan Alex Cabrera gets the next shot with five games left in 2002. He has the chance to go against the Hawks, who are still managed by Sadaharu O. Oh, claims he told them to pitch to him that time. They seem to have ignored it because he didn't get any pitches. And then afterwards, O did come out saying, if you're going to break the record, you should do it by more than one. Do it by a lot. Well, hey, sir, maybe if your team gave them a shot.
2: Yeah, I mean, with five games left, you probably could break it by more than one. But if you don't get a pitch hit for five games, what are you going to do? I mean, I like the pettiness,
1: and it's not even a Sadahara O thing. It's a you're not setting this record against us thing. Like, when Wilt scored his hundred. The Knicks were desperately trying to foul other players because they don't want that record set. I respect that. I feel
2: like they wouldn't do that, though, if it was a Japanese player who was going to break the record.
0: Oh, no, It's that's absolutely an element of it. And it does come up one more time. It comes up in 2013 when Vladimir Ballantin, another like one-time American player, does finally reach 55 and 56, both against... The Hanshin Tigers uh, gets all the way up to sixty home runs. The controversy with this one, though, is that the ball was so juiced that season that everyone's like totals went up, and the commissioner resigned in disgrace after that year. Though he did not leap from his hotel balcony floor. Okay, I
2: was I was about to ask if that happened. I, I
0: imagined that was going to be the case. No, this time the disgrace just leads to resigning.
1: Rob Manfred, take notes. <laughs>
0: Um, so, like that record is contentious, and, and Randy Bass has a place in the history of it. But one record that is not contentious to this day, Randy Bass's 389 batting average during one of his Triple Crown seasons, despite admirable attempts by Ichiro Suzuki in 1994 and 2000, that is still the single season record for batting average in NPB. Foreign participation has been contentious in Japanese baseball for a long time. And I do think it should be clear that, look, they'll still embrace. A great who eventually embraces them. And Randy Bass, you know, he was not only beloved in Osaka, he was beloved in the sport as a whole. And just this last month, I am pleased to announce to you, actually, that I found during this, both he and Alex Cabrera were elected to the Japanese Hall of Fame. Maybe I'll get a chance to go,
2: uh, to, go to the Japanese Hall of Fame and see them.
0: I certainly hope that you can join our friend Randy Bass. And I hope that our friend Randy Bass can join some of our other friends here in the hall because Randy Bass, Basu, a great ambassador for the sport. He is an incredibly good minor leaguer, an absolute scrub major leaguer, and one of the greatest NPB hitters of all time. He's a land of contradiction, but above <laughs> all of it, Basu is a guy.
1: Well, I, I like that. They hold the A a little longer because I feel like Randy Bass is the classic quad A player. So just that extra A on the syllable really, really just completes that.
0: I'm now forever pictured as being B, quad A, S-U.
1: B, quad A, S-U. Absolutely. Well, that was fantastic, but I'm hoping that with my guy, I might be able to just barely edge out the both of you. And I'll I'll preview what you're saying. There is a slight bit of pandering here to all of us, you know. Some birds' migratory patterns is to fly south, but uh, we're going to talk about an owl this time, a temple owl, in fact, that chose to fly north uh, when his college football career ended. Went up to Canada, yes. where he became yes. one of the greatest quarterbacks in the history of the CFL. I'm talking, of course, about the man, the myth, the legend. Henry Armand Burris Jr., better known as just simply Henry
2: Burris. This is such pandering, and I already appreciate it.
0: I'm quaking in my boots with my, my Randy Bass stock, but I am excited to hear this.
1: Well, it's important to, again, start where we always do, the beginning, born June 4th, 1975 in Spiro, Oklahoma. Henry was always a natural athlete. In fact, he lettered in four sports in high school, uh, despite there just being the three seasons. So between football, basketball, baseball, and then he's also competing for the track team. He's going to earn letters in all four of those sports. And in football his senior year, he is named the Oklahoma Offensive Player of the Year. With that being his resume, you would think he would have some offers to some big schools, maybe stay in the state, go to OU, maybe Texas would try to poach him. But he actually ends up committing to Temple. Going to Temple, he's going to have the chance to play against some of the best teams in the country, Temple being in the Big East at the time. You had Virginia Tech, you had Miami, two of the big powers in college football at the time. And throughout his four years, he's going to hang up some very impressive numbers. By the time he graduates as a senior, he is second in the history of the Big East in passing yardage with 7,495 yards. We don't need to talk too much about how Temple did in those (laughs) four years. uh, Because they averaged a grand total of one win per season. Uh, His first year as a freshman, they would go winless. They would get one win in 94, double that up to two in 95. And in his senior year in 96, they would drop back down to one win.
2: That's pretty bad. You know what? It's Temple, baby. That's why we're special.
1: Well, it's, it's important to understand your roots, right? As, as Temple football fans, as Temple alumni, it's important to, to know where we came from.
0: Now, something that I've heard from other Oklahoma athletes is there might have been some way for him to commit for both uh, football and baseball. Did he do that at all?
1: Unfortunately, he did not have the opportunity to uh, do any double sport action. You know, it would have been easier at a Temple, right, or at any of the Philly schools. You could have just hopped on the broad street line, make a quick transfer. And, uh, you know, he could have played baseball at Penn, but didn't work out that way, uh, for Henry Burris. So, I mean, and despite putting up, you know, these impressive numbers, again, second in the history of the Big East conference upon graduation and passing yards, um, had 20 different records at Temple when he graduated, which again, Hey, 20 records, but Temple didn't get too much attention in the NFL circles with that. But, the people up north did take notice, uh, specifically in Calgary. So he's going to sign with the Calgary Stampeders for 1997. He's going to be the third string. Uh, would either of you care to guess who the first string was?
0: Someone who eventually went on to play in the NFL, I presume.
1: It looks like a rat, smells like a rat, is what Tara Owens would say. But what I'm going to say is Jeff Garcia was the starting point. Ooh. Ooh, that's a good one. For the Calgary Stampeders. Uh, perhaps in another week he may have a guy presentation of his own. But Jeff Garcia, the first strain, uh, a guy by the name of Dave Dickinson, is the second strainer, and then Henry Burris, being the third strain. doesn't see any action in '97. He does see spot duty in '98 as the Stampeders go on to win the Grey Cup. So officially, this would be his first Grey Cup. The next year. On the back of that, Jeff Garcia gets an offer to go to the 49ers, uh, where he would become a multiple-time Pro Bowl quarterback. But this means Dickinson slides up one to the starting role, and Henry Burris is now the backup. Not a great start for Dickinson. They lose their first two games, and in week three, they're struggling again against the Edmonton Eskimos. So Burris is going to come in, and he's going to lead them to a come-from-behind victory.
0: I can only contribute the one thing that I do know, which is they, they are now, just in case anyone's concerned about that Edmonton team name, the Edmonton Elks.
1: Is is it the Elks now?
0: It is the Elks now to address the fact that some people are like, hey, Eskimos, not great. It was at the time Eskimos. I'm not correcting what, what they were when they were in that game. Mike.
1: Fair, fair, fair. Okay, okay. I, I wanted to make sure. I want to make sure. He's named the starter after this in week four against the Alouettes. They pick up another victory. And in week five... Unfortunately, in the third quarter, Henry Burst tears his ACL. He's going to miss the rest of that 99 season. But on the basis of that performance before he tore his ACL, in 2000, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders want to give him a chance to be the starting quarterback. And he seizes it and he does really well. Across 16 starts, he's going to throw for 4,647 yards and 30 touchdowns. Not enough for the Rough Riders to make the playoffs, but it is enough for the NFL to finally take notice. In 2001, the Packers are going to sign him to be their third-string quarterback. Not going to see any action that year. Uh, He would ultimately be cut and spend some time on the practice squad. For 2002, he would then go to the Chicago Bears. He does see spot duty, um, especially late in the season, but the jump up in competition... Not something that Burris is ready for. He's going to go 18 for 51 for 207 yards, three touchdowns to five interceptions. He'd also run for 104 yards. So does officially make it into the NFL, does get to to see some action, but not doing too well. However, following that NFL season, the Bears still hold his rights. So they assign him to go to NFL Europe, where he's going to play for the Berlin Thunder. They could
0: just send him to Berlin?
1: As oldiness writes, yes. I think there were certain things that, that <laughs> if, you, if you had a certain amount of NFL experience, you could refuse an assignment. But basically, in, a, in an MLB kind of thing, he didn't have the service time to be able to refuse the assignment. Um, RIP
0: NFL Europe. Also, Diaz, I have a, a quick question for you, something I was curious about. Do you know who the backup quarterback for the Green Bay Packers was that year?
1: For 2001. Behind Brett Favre. That wouldn't have been a Harbaugh, was it?
0: No, it's Doug Peterson. He went back in
1: 2001. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he started for the Eagles in 98. And then he went back to Green Bay to be the backup. Incredible. Well, great pool. And thank you for pointing that out to me. So I'm I'm glad that Henry Burris got to to rub shoulders with the goat there. But he goes to Berlin, 2003. Doesn't really like being in Europe. Doesn't really like that assignment. He'd kind of rather go back to Canada He does post an incredibly nice 69.0 quarterback rating for his time with the Berlin Thunder. But he wants to go back to Canada and he makes that known to the Bears. The Bears grant him his release so that he can return to Saskatchewan, where he will be a backup for the rest of the 2003 season. And then in 2004, they reappoint him as the starter. He leads them to the Western Final. Uh, He has a chance to go to his first Grey Cup as a starter, but. He would lose to the BC Lions and his contract would be up with the Rough Riders at this point. Very clearly proven himself to be a very capable Canadian quarterback at this point. So he's going to sign with the Calgary Stampeders and here he's going to turn them into a perennial playoff team. His first year, they make it to the Western semifinal where they do lose to Edmonton. In 2006, he gets a chance at redemption going against those same Saskatchewan Rough Riders, but he loses in the Western semifinal. 2007, though, things are going to be a little different. This time, the Stampeders are hosting their first playoff game since 1988 against those Saskatchewan Rough Riders. And in the second matchup against the Rough Riders, you know he has revenge on his mind, and it doesn't matter. His former team still beats him. Uh, And he's going to drop to 0-2 in his playoff career against the Rough Riders. 2008, though, is going to be different. This time, it actually is different. Because the Rough Riders didn't make the playoffs that year. Henry Burris has the best season of his career to this point. Leads the Stampeders to a CFL best 13-5. And they would advance to the Grey Cup for the first time in his career. He's going to throw for 328 yards and a touchdown. Five field goals is going to be more than he would have liked to see from his offense, but the one touchdown and the five field goals is enough to lead the Stampeders to a 22 to 14 victory in the Grey Cup. Henry Burris is named the MVP of the game.
0: We've got an incredibly good minor league player and the best CFL quarterback so far, just accumulating an excellent roster of. Faint praise, guys.
1: Well, we still have a long way to go in the career of Henry Burris. Don't you worry, James. He still has that Rough Rider itch that he just needs to scratch. So in 2009, they're again going to make the playoffs, and they're going to go to the West Final. And this was a season in particular where Henry Burris was snake bitten by the Rough Riders. In four regular season games, they went 0-3-1 against them. They did have the one tie, so didn't lose every game, but still not able to get a win. So he's really itching for it in the Western Final. He has a chance to go back to the Grey Cup, defend that title, and he loses 27-17. to The Rough Riders, once again, get the best of him. But this puts Henry Burris in full go mode. There's nothing that's going to stand between him and what he wants this time. In 2010, he posts the most passing yards, the most passing touchdowns in the Canadian Football League. He's going to throw for 4,945 yards, and 38 touchdowns. That would lead to a 101.9 quarterback rating, a CFL best 13-5 and record, and for the first time in his career, he is named the league MOP, most outstanding player, but still the same as what we would consider the MVP. Does the CFL have a
2: best Canadian player versus
0: (laughs) best overall player like the New Zealand league?
1: No, they just they just have the most outstanding player one. Um, you don't need
0: anything more than one mop to get things done.
1: He's mopping up the competition, and with that 13-5 and five record, they get to advance straight to the Western Final, where they meet the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. This is Henry Burris at the height of his powers. There is no way that he can lose to the Rough Riders again, and he does 20-16. to 16. The Rough Riders have once again gotten the best of Henry Burris.
0: This is just four falls of Buffalo on the other side of the border now.
1: We are at one, two, three. This is the fourth fall. This is the fourth fall of Henry, specifically to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders.
0: We are about to go into Jerry West territory.
1: We're not going to get there quite yet. In 2011, coming off of this, again, most outstanding player. Burris has a good season, but not a great season. And the last three starts of the regular season actually go to Drew Tate. Not Andrew Tate, so not a complete dickhead, but still a guy that's stealing the job from Henry Burris, so we're not really a fan. Drew Tate really struggles in the first half of their Western semifinals, so they do go back to the old guard. Henry Burris takes over at halftime, but he's not able to lead them back, and they bow out in the Western semifinals. Now, based off of this disrespect, Henry Burris wants out. You know, I've led you guys to a great cup. I was most outstanding player last year. I have one slightly down year, and you're going to disrespect me like this. He wants out. So he goes to the Hamilton Ticats for the 2012 season. And for that 2012 season, he's again on a vengeance tour, and he's going to post career best almost across the board statistically. He's going to have 391 completions, 604 attempts, going to throw for a then career high, 5,367 yards, and his 104.4 quarterback rating that season would be the best of his entire CFL career. However, his defense sucked, and they went 6-12, and they didn't even get close to making the playoffs.
0: Do we know, on relative to the rest of CFL history, that sounds like a historically bad defense to ruin it that much.
1: I, I can't put it... In that perspective, I didn't look up the specifics of how bad the defense was. But again, with those kind of numbers, threw for 43 touchdowns and his team went 6-12. Not great, but Henry Burris has been around the CFL for a long time at this point. Uh, So in 2013, he has the chance to make some history. And in fact, he does. He would become the fifth quarterback in CFL history to throw for 50,000 career yards. For the season, he throws for 4,925 which is good enough to lead the league for the second consecutive season. The defense is just a little bit better this year. Uh, so they do sneak into the playoffs. And as an underdog in the East now, they win their semifinal. They win their final. And he gets to the Grey Cup. Who is waiting for him? The Saskatchewan Rough Who Rough Riders? And now... We're on the biggest stage in the entire game of Canadian football, right? Because this Can- is the Cup. first
0: time he's faced them in the Grey Cup. It's been the conference finals every other time, or so, somewhere on the conference.
1: Exactly, exactly. It's it's always been one step or two to get to the Grey Cup. But now, on the game's biggest stage, he is not to be denied. Except they are down thirty-one-six at half, and they lose forty-five to twenty-three. It's never close. This is the fifth fall to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders.
2: Damn those Rough Riders.
1: Damn those Rough Riders. And, you know, on the back of this, now the Thai Cats aren't sure if they want to stick with Burris. So he's going to become a free agent, and he's actually going to be the marquee signing of the expansion Ottawa Red Blacks.
0: We had the All Blacks, and now we got the Red Blacks.
1: Now we have the Red Blacks, and obviously Burris is the marquee signing. He's... Supposed to be the guy to to put this franchise on the map. And in 2014, it's an expansion team. I don't know what you were expecting. It goes horribly. Burris posts some career low marks. Uh, His 78.7 quarterback rating would be the worst that he would post in any season as a starter. Only throws for 3,728 yards. 11 touchdowns versus 14 interceptions. Just really not a great season. So some people might say it's now really time to hang it up. But in Theresian faction, Henry Burris still had more shit to prove. This 2015 season, which just to be clear, this is his age 40 season, makes Tom Brady look downright geriatric. In earning his second most outstanding player award for the regular season, Burris would go 481 of 678. For 5,683 yards across 18 games, only to 26 touchdowns, but with his 100.9 quarterback rating, again, that's enough to win the most outstanding player award. Uh, He led the league in passing yards and completion percentage that year. On November 7th, on the last game of the year, his 481 completions that he reached for the season on that day would be the CFL record for most completions in a season. Ma, ma. He's mapping it up on October 1st of that same season. He would set the CFL record for completions in a game with 45. He also threw for a career high 504 yards on that day. This would be enough to lead the Red Blacks to a 12 and six record. Uh, and they earn that first round by they go to the Eastern final where he has another matchup with a former team of his. It's not the Rough Riders yet, though. It is the Ticats. This time he is actually going to get vengeance on his old team. He's going to beat the Ticats to go ahead and advance to the Grey Cup where they face off against Edmonton and Edmonton does get the best of them. Now entering his age 41 season, he's still going to be the starter for the Red Blacks entering that year, but in the third quarter of the first game of the season, he injures the pinky on his throwing hands. This is thought to just knock him out for a week or two at first, but backup Trevor Harris comes in and is doing pretty well with the team. So he ultimately gets transferred to the six-game injured list. But when Harris got injured, they were able to activate Burris back from the list early. So he's going to start in week six and week seven. Now, all the talk on TSN, which is the Canadian ESPN, was basically, is it time for the Red Blacks to move on from Henry Burris? He did the job when they signed him. He put them on the map, but... It's time to go in the direction of Trevor Harris. He's lighting it up in that week seven spot start that he gets against Edmonton. And in an infamous now in the history of CFL halftime interview, he would say, so to all the people talking all that junk out there, you can take that and shove it. All right. That's all I
0: have to say. Which for the polite folks up in Canada is some incredibly profane language.
1: I'm not sure if they had to break the centers out for that, but he was rightfully ticked off. They then go into the Week 8 bye. Coming back for Week 9, he earned a starting job back, but the Red Blacks lose. And the Red Blacks decide that it's time again to go back to the younger guys. So for Weeks 10 through 15, they go back to Harris. They're having some mixed results. It's getting to be the end of the season, and it's now almost do-or-die time. The Red Blacks are sitting at a record of six, seven, and one when they decide to go back to Burris. He's able to just split those last four games, two and two. So they finish at eight, nine, and one, which is good enough not only for them to make the playoffs, but they actually win the East that year.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is this is starting to feel very last season of Peyton Manning, and I can only imagine that if that continues, we're gonna have a very happy Burris in a little bit.
1: Well, like, it's not like his defense was carrying him, but like it is like very much Burris not at the height of his powers anymore. But with that 8-9-1 record, winning the East, they get the bye straight to the Eastern Final. By the way, that was the first time and still only time in CFL history that a team won their division with a losing record. They would win in the East Final over Edmonton, which is going to advance them to... The 104th Grey Cup. Now in the 104th Grey Cup, he's going against, once again, a former team. Thankfully, it's not those Rough Riders, but it is the first team that he ever started for, the Calgary Stampeders. The head coach of the Calgary Stampeders. Would either of you like to guess who that is? It's Dave Dickinson. The man that he backed up in that first tenure with Calgary is now the head coach of the Stampeders. This is coming full circle. In, potentially, the last game of Henry Burris's career. But we have disaster before the game even starts. Henry Burris tweaks his knee, goes down in pain. It's caught by the pregame cameras. Much speculation as to whether or not he's going to be able to play. But Henry Burris knows this is the last shot he's got. So at the age of 41, with that knee injury, he's still going to go out. And he's still going to try his best for his team. He's going to throw for 461 yards and three touchdowns. <laughs> he gets the Red Blacks to overtime, where they score the only touchdown in overtime, and they pull off the most stunning upset in Grey Cup history, winning 39-33, bringing the Grey Cup back to Ottawa for the first time in 40 years.
0: As an 8-9-1 and one division winner.
1: And truly saved his best game for last. At the Great Cup parade just two days after, Burris was on crutches and said he was going to need surgery to fix his knee. He told the 40,000 fans in attendance that he would need to wait on his decision regarding the future of his playing career until January 2017. He would decide at that point, after having had surgery, you know what? I can't imagine it getting much better than this. So, after winning that Great Cup in dramatic fashion at the age of 41, Henry Burris does finally retire from gridiron football at large after having spent a grand total of 20 seasons from 1997 to 2016, traversing not just the North American continent, but also transatlantic to Europe. After 20 years, finally, his career does come to an end. Today, you can find Henry Burris down in Jacksonville, where he is an offensive quality control coach. You would think that maybe he would have had the chance to be a coach in the Canadian Football League, given his vast experience there. He did spend 11 days as an offensive consultant for the BC Lions in 2022, before being offered that Jaguars job, at which time he promptly left the Lions to go down to Jacksonville.
0: His old buddy Doug Peterson saw him get hired by the Lions. He's like, hey, different jungle cat. Come on, have fun. Different big cat. Sorry, Lions don't live in the jungle.
1: I'm glad you pointed that out earlier because, I mean, that's absolutely what that connection is, right? I mean, Doug Peterson remembered Henry Burris being his backup when he was Brett Favre's backup. Extended a job. And now, I mean, who knows? Who knows where the coaching career of Henry Burris could lead? The Andy Reid coaching tree is vast and mighty. We'll see how the Doug Peterson coaching tree develops further off of that. But that's Henry Burris arguably the greatest quarterback in the history of the Canadian football league, having a final act that makes Tom Brady look like he should be sipping pudding out of a straw. Incredible stuff from Henry Burris. And the stuff that I would personally say is the stuff of guy.
0: I mean, there is no question that he is a mop. The question I guess becomes, is he a mog? Is he our most outstanding guy?
2: Did play for a Temple team that won four games over four years.
0: Is that a positive? I
2: love love the commitment. Almost anybody
1: else, right, would have been like, "Damn, we only won four games in four years. Maybe this football thing isn't for me." But stuck with it for twenty years as a professional.
0: If that's not going to break your spirit, I don't know what else would be able to. I'll say for Casey Frank, my biggest concern on his front. I'll I'll start with the positive. It would be nice, as we here following the 2023 Oscar nominations are in a a vacuum of nominations for RRR, which was very much denied. It would be nice to throw Bollywood this one and get Casey Frank a trophy, if nothing else, or at least a plaque. That being said, yeah, that's (laughs) my literal next point. He is cursed. And he has destroyed several franchises, and we are but a nascent thing still that I would like to not have wither away and just deteriorate because of his anti-Midas touch. (laughs) No disrespect to Casey Frank. Please stay a good six feet away from me. We're back to social distancing, Mr. Frank. I'm
2: sure Casey is doing fine over in New Zealand. I'm very easy to pander to. I love Henry Burris. I like the CFL. I like Temple. All of these things work for me. Yes, probably knew that. I know I know he knew that, but it's still successful.
0: Now, may I remind you that at no point in Henry Burroughs' life has a crowd chosen to represent him with a Colonel Sanders statue. I think that moment of two different beautiful exports from America. Randy Bass serves literally as an ambassador for several years, continuing to fill export in as many different roles as he can between uh, uh, America and Japan. Then as the Oklahoma State Senator helped regulate imports and exports there. Admittedly, I don't know how much stuff Oklahoma is importing from Japan. They definitely have PlayStations, but outside of that, anime. is Oklahoma famously into anime?
2: Everywhere's into anime. They just don't tell you.
0: Well, I mean, if that's the case, then I think that just strengthens my argument because of the connection that Randy Bass helped forge between these American and Japanese cultures.
2: I do like the Colonel Sanders statue. The Canadians are too nice to uh, throw a statue of Tim Hortons uh, into the St. Lawrence.
0: No, they already threw all the statues away. That's why there weren't any for Diaz to see. And, And he remained with his cartoon lumberjack version of Tim Horton.
1: Yeah, what color flannel did I say that was? I think I
0: said red. I'm almost certain it was like a nice red and black tartan.
1: Yeah, oh absolutely. You
0: basically described like the bounty paper towel guy. <laughs> There's two guys with with international records. One of we like writing wrongs. Randy Bass was denied a true honest shot at that home run record all those years ago. Whereas in the end, although he didn't get a win against the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, I'd say otherwise Henry Burris got a pretty full satisfactory run. I'm sorry for him that he didn't get a win over the Rough Riders.
1: and 5 in his (laughs) postseason career against the team that scorned him.
0: And like, he has, what, three losses combined against other teams?
1: In the playoffs, yes. Yeah. Yeah. it, It was really... It bothered me a lot going through his history to know that there was no catharsis at any point, and I hope I was able to convey that.
0: It was frustrating.
2: See, I'm like 50-50 right now, but Henry Burris being Temple and also Diaz probably being pissed off when he finds out that Scott Rowland made the Hall of Fame today. He's, I, I kind of want to give him a win here.
1: Jimmy Rollins is better than Scott Rowland and has a
2: much stronger Hall of Fame career. You, you know you know what percentage of the vote Jimmy Rollins got?
0: Please say more than five. Please, for the love of God, say more than five.
2: 12.9.
0: Okay. I didn't want to see what was about to happen there. He
2: was 13. He was 13th in the vote. I don't
1: want to digress too much. Just compare his numbers to the other shortstops that are already in the Hall of Fame, and it's very clear that he belongs in.
0: Do you want to make a correct baseball decision instead? Could I interest you, perhaps, in some Randy Bass? (laughs) Here's my last pitch for Randy Bass. What I loved about him is a lot of the information I got was from an old Sports Illustrated article that was partially through the career, like not able to look back at the whole thing. And it was still when he was a pretty recent transplant to it and was not having the most comfortable time. They're talking a little bit more about the hardship of having the family there at that point and reading about more recent accounts from him, reading about stuff where he's looking back even like later in his career, not to mention post-career. He now just has this like incredible past view of his time there. He talks about all the food that he got to eat in Osaka, all of the uh, the Shogi, uh, a board game that he learned how to play with all of his... You think uh, I
2: don't know what Shogi is?
0: I'm trying to be educational to the listeners, Xavier. I want to just tell them that Shogi exists. It's a board game he played with his teammates. This is all to say... I think he represents the best possible outcome of cultural exchange with what he went on to do after his time there. You know, he came there, he was this Oklahoma cowboy, and being so thoroughly himself, he warmed up the Japanese people to this creasing presence of foreign players in the league, and then throwing himself into this beautiful melting pot in the Osaka Bay he was able to open his eyes, open his world, and really better himself by immersing himself in this and taking that with him and, and using that to influence his life going on. And that's, that, that is my final pitch for Randy Bass. I'm going to vote for Randy Bass. If I lose 2-1, I, I, I lose 2-1. I, I do like I firmly the character of Randy Bass.
2: Uh, but, but we did give Canadians the sport that will give them all CTE, and they in turn gave us the Rouge, the one-point play.
0: We didn't just do a Canada pity vote for Donovan Bailey like two weeks ago. So if, this, oh, shit, if the did. new cue is just get a Canada pity vote, like that's fine. I will adjust my metagame approach going forward.
1: Let me just say, because again, back to the category. Was Randy Bass ever granted Japanese citizenship? Ooh, that, no, is a good, no, that is No, Randy a good Bass one. has
0: never been granted Japanese citizenship. Randy Bass was an export and then later re-imported.
1: Henry Burris was granted Canadian residency in April 28, 2017.
0: This is true. He is also currently, though, a Florida man, which is about as far from Canadian as you can be while being on the same continent.
2: See, now coming back to Casey Frank, the only one who actually lives in the country that they were exported to and became a citizen That's... of that country. God, now Now, all now, right, now it's coming full circle. <laughs>
1: I was only raising that point to differentiate between Burris and Bass.
2: And both live in Frank America, back. so that doesn't help you.
1: Don't bring Frank back to this. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm sticking my guns.
0: It's, so it's, it's, it's you, Xavier. And look, if you want to show that pandering works, if that's what you want to role model, like Charles Barker did to Casey Frank all those years ago.
2: He has call it in the air. Tails. It is Tails. Randy Bass
0: was more robbed than he was (laughs) in 1985 by the Sadaharu-O managed Yomiuri Giants. I just want that to go on record. Don't
2: worry, Randy Bass will get in next week. It's fine.
1: I mean, James, you being the the biggest advocate of random in Mario Kart, you have to appreciate that we just had our first election ever settled by a literal random coin flip.
0: No, look, hey uh we we talked about palpatine earlier and i too love democracy <laughs> this is it this season was a poor showing for me what can i say I, I i started off with two of the first three and then haven't been back yet but as you said xavier hey,
2: overall possibly still doing good time. i have the stats for how many how many wins we all have if you want to know what it
0: well, is hold on i'm so sorry we're getting ahead of ourselves i'm letting my frustration take away the honors that are due to a certain guy. Diaz, if you would, please.
1: Well, of course, it is our great honor and our great pleasure to welcome into the Hall of Guy a guy that proved that if at first you don't succeed, try, 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 try again. You still might lose to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, but with those efforts, you will be recognized and hailed. Even if you only won four games at Temple as a guy, welcome to the Hall of Guy, Henry Burris.
2: If things are tough in Philadelphia, move to Canada.
0: Sure, that's the message we can <laughs> <laughs> leave. Well, okay, back as we were saying. Folks, that goes ahead and gets us towards now the, the stretch run of season five because next week we've got our fifth instance of re It's a very special episode. Gentlemen, do you know what next week is? Is it 69? It It is the 69th time that we have all met to do this. For Relitigation 5, we will once again debate our last nine batches of guys and see who still needs to make that mark. In the meantime, is there anything else that you guys want to mark on our way out here?
2: Temple beat number one Houston for their first one over a number one team in 20 years. Take that, Houston.
1: I got such an elite dad text from my dad after that game because it's... Simply stated plainly what had happened, big win for Temple, and he misspelled Aaron McKee's name in saying it, spelled it (laughs) M-C-K-E-Y. Hopefully that is the marquee win for McKee, with the incorrectly spelled McKee. So it was an elite dad text and an an elite win for for the Owls.
0: How is Andrew Jones still only at 58.1%? I'm looking at it now, and I'm like the greatest center fielder of all time with 400 home runs. Anyway.
2: Right, we'll, get, we'll get Todd Helton in next year. You can enjoy that.
0: Diaz, our condolences about Scott Rowland.
1: It's just not fair. They're one L and a changed vowel and making it plural away from getting it right. But they get it wrong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, here's what it might have been. Rowland does come first alphabetically if you're going by last name. They, they saw ROL. They didn't look any further.
1: This is what's wrong with the Baseball Writers Association of America. They're too busy writing and they're not reading these ballots closely enough.
0: Sincerely hope that we will find the day where your dad can send you an incredibly stereotypical text about Jimmy Rollins' election into the Hall of Fame. But until then, I remain James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier.
1: And I'm Diaz. And as Ham Porter said in Sandlot, you play ball like a
0: guy.